Welcome to this surprise collab episode of Papa PhD. This episode is special because in it I interviewed Danny Reges, host of the What Are You Going to Do With That podcast from the Minerva Center for the Study of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. And at the same time, I'm being featured today on the What Are You Going to Do With That podcast. So when you finish listening to Danny's interview, hop over and listen to mine on their show. And now, for this week's feature. Traveling and going to the other side of the world might sound very spontaneous and exciting, um, but I think it's also allowing yourself to take that time, um, even if it's just a few weeks, not a few months, uh, to, to know that when you start something, you've considered it. And it's not something you just jumped into because other people told you it's what you were supposed to do. It was really your own choice. And I think it's much easier to live with that than any other way. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. So welcome to this episode of Papa PhD. This week, I have with me Dani Reges. Dani is a PhD fellow and research associate at the Haifa Center for German and European Studies at the University of Haifa in Israel. She received her BA in Middle Eastern Studies from Leiden University in the Netherlands, during which she co-established a student society. As part of her BA, she spent a semester in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem on an exchange program. Danny also holds a BA certificate in Peace and Conflict Studies and an MA degree in Diplomacy, a specialization, a specialization in International Relations from the University of Haifa. Her PhD dissertation focuses on policy and perceptions of immigrants from the Middle East in Europe. In other research projects, Danny works on refugees and international law in the EU during crises, including the so-called refugee crisis and the corona pandemic. Welcome to Papa PhD, Danny. Thank you very much for having me here today, David. It's my pleasure. And one thing I didn't mention, and we'll talk about, we'll talk about it a little more in depth later, is that also... Danny is the host of What Are You Going to Do With That? Uh, a podcast uh, that, that is, uh, maybe actually can, you can describe it, uh, uh, you know, how, you know, where it stems from and what it talks about. Right. So I'm the host of the podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That? Uh, which is part of the Minerva Center of the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions located at the University of Haifa in Israel. Um, and we, me and my colleague Ido, have started uh, working on this podcast because we really want to talk about any struggles or challenges that people are doing a PhD or a postdoc and um, really in their early career, early academic career, face um, during their academic journey. Because we believe that every every person's journey is very unique, but On, on the other hand, a lot of challenges and struggles are common and shared with others. So sharing these stories can help our listeners identify with these challenges and learn that they're not alone in their struggles and also 
you know, hear about tips and recommendations from others who've already been through it. So we're trying to build this network and system of people listening to each other and learning from each other to really create a positive vibe going through the whole process, less alone. And uh, so as you you can hear uh the it, it, the project uh is is uh, i find it very interesting because the mission is very close to uh, the mission i've i've given myself with papa phd and what is it is it's just inspiring people out there that are in your case you you focus more on the academic journey but to inspire them by showing them and sharing with them examples of what other people have done what other people have faced as uh, obstacles or um, or difficulties, but also what what uh, successes, what good solutions, what good ideas other people have had. So uh, uh, kudos for that, and, uh, and and I'm super happy to be uh, publishing at the same time this episode as kind of a twin uh, collaboration collab episode between Papa PhD and what are you going to do with that? <coughs> mm -hmm. uh, so in your episode i was on the other side of the microphone so answering questions which is uh, uh, still quite unusual to me um but on this interview i'm going to be uh, to be asking you questions and sharing with my audience what your journey has been so far and uh what you've been up to in, in during your phd in terms of uh, acad in, in academic terms but also in non-academic terms, what you've been working on, that, that includes the, the podcast, of course, but what other things also you have been doing that are non-academic? Uh, but let's start by the beginning, uh, and this is part one of the interview. So as, as usual, we're going to be talking about how you got to where you are today in academic terms. So we've talked about... Um, uh, so you're in a, in the Haifa Center for German and European Studies. Uh, you're doing a PhD on policy and perceptions of immigrants from the Middle East in Europe. Uh, how did you get, before talking about exactly what you're working on, how did you get to the PhD? How was the, the, the whole academic journey for you? Right. Actually, it all comes down to a big coincidence. Uh, to be honest, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I signed up for a PhD or, or applied for a position, actually. See, what happened is that um, I moved to Israel from the Netherlands, where I'm from, um, partially to be able to go from the humanities uh, faculty, which I had had my BA in from the Netherlands, to straight ahead go into political science, which is in social sciences, different faculty. In the Netherlands, I wasn't able to do that unless I would have done a year in between to get some more courses done. And here at the University of Haifa, because I had taken some classes earlier in peace and conflict, which is also political science, they allowed me to straight go into that MA. So that's one of the reasons that I moved here, that I started doing that MA. And it was amazing. I loved political science. Um, I loved the small programs with just a few students so that I could really choose my own topics that I had to write papers about. Um, so when I wrote my master thesis and my supervisor said, um, I'm not only in the political science department, I'm also a part of the Center for German and European Studies. And we are, uh, every year we open up two positions for PhD students with a scholarship. 
maybe you want to consider applying for it because my master thesis was about the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, so for the European Center, that was something interesting. So I was like, well, you know, I like what I'm doing. I like the writing. Uh, first, I'm going on a gap year in Australia. And from there, I'll write the application, <laughs> which I did from uh, the Wi-Fi at McDonald's in Australia, where I was as a backpacker. Uh, I applied for this PhD position uh, after having spoken to this supervisor of my MA, who was already with, uh, with that center. And then eventually I got the news when I was still in Australia that I've gotten in, that I got the position and that when I was going to be back in Israel, this is something I was going to start. Uh, what a PhD was and how much effort and time, uh, and that is really a lifestyle instead of just a position, um, was not clear to me. And I had to learn a lot along the way. And that's why I'm very happy uh, to be hosting the podcast, What to Do With That?, because um, I get to listen to others, to hear uh, how they've been dealing with things. And I'm also happy that, like you said before, I can pass that on to people who are just starting now. Now, you mentioned something that, uh, that I found really interesting, and I didn't do that. I didn't think it was something possible. I didn't, it, you know, it didn't arise in my mind. You talked about taking a gap year. I like to talk about that. And yeah, to, to talk about how you took that decision, how easy was it to take it, and how you organized to be able to, to go backpacking in Australia. Right, how I managed. Well, um, it's always been something on my mind, right? Australia as a child, uh, to uh, see a kangaroo for real, <laughs> um, to see all of these amazing places where there's desert, big cities, um, but also the tropics and everything in between. Um, was something that was always on my mind. And I'd learned about this program where you could go on a working holiday visa, um, which Dutch people with my Dutch nationality um, is fairly easy to apply for. You just go online, you pay a little bit of money, and then within 24 hours, I got an email, here's your online visa uh, to go to Australia for one year, allowing you to work so that you could also finance your trip there. Um, and I knew that this was only possible until the age of 30. Now, I'm not necessarily going to tell you how old I am now, but I'm hitting it. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point I was like, you know, before 30, this is my goal in life to make it to Australia. Um, and, um, this was the right time in my life because I had just finished the MA. I wasn't sure yet what I was going to do exactly with that, whether I was going to look for a job here in Israel where I had moved to, or if I was going to find a job in Europe, in the Netherlands or any other EU country, uh, which is an option, um, or continue studying because I got this idea from my um, MA supervisor already about the PhD. So this was a good time for me to go about and think about it in a different setting. And my partner, we've been together for quite a while already, um, also got really lucky as an Israeli to get that same visa that he had applied for from oh, here. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was really a ticket out of the lottery. And then, you know, you need to go within so many months, otherwise the visa won't be valid anymore. So they're like, okay, yalla, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And so, because I, I've met other people and I've interviewed people who, who took breaks and the feeling I got was that they were better equipped or by the end of the break, they knew 
much better what they wanted to do, what their their plans were. In your case, you were, like you say, you were at the McDonald's on the Wi-Fi applying for a PhD at a certain time. But I imagine that, you know, you went to Australia, you were doing that, you were thinking about it or you were thinking about options, possibilities. My question is, for people out there who can afford to take some time off, do you recommend it? Exactly. Uh, you're mentioning something very important there. You have to be able to afford it, right? I'm very lucky to be this privileged. Um, it was also not my first gap year. Um, I met my partner 10 years ago because I came on a gap year to Israel to learn the language here. Um, and then I started my BA. And after my BA, before I started my MA, I traveled for nine months with my partner in Southeast Asia, including India. Uh, and only after that, he started studying. Um, and I think it helped both of us at each time that we had a gap year to really look deeper down into your soul, think about what makes you happy and why it is you do things or you don't want to do things uh, and how hard you want to push for something you think is right for you at that time. Um, so I think it really makes you, it gives you that time to reflect, right? I'm not saying that a gap year or traveling 24-7 is necessarily relaxing because it's not only a holiday, it's also very hard traveling and planning where you're going to stay that night, uh, which in a way can also be stressful. It's also exciting. I like it. That's why I did it. But it can also be stressful. You need to be ready for that. But just wanted to say something. All that you've said can apply to taking a three-month break. Right. You can take shorter breaks. You can also take breaks uh, closer to home if you uh, are able to maybe volunteer in your own community. And that allows you to be outside of your own bubble and to meet different people because it's also about the people you meet, uh, the impressions that they leave on you, um, talking to them about why they do certain things or didn't do certain things, what they regret or don't regret. I think that's the essence, like the people you meet and being a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And this can be closer to home. Yeah, I find it very interesting. And uh, again, it's it's not something that I would have at the time thought of, you know, but for people who are out there listening, if you have a big decision to take and either you're feeling that there's too much pressure to take it or you're really not sure right now, take some time. Maybe if you just finished a chapter of your life, let's say, of your academic life, two, three months doing a, having a job, a different thing that has nothing to do with it. And, you know, that may be the thing that helps you at the end of this kind of short break even uh, get to the that answer that you're looking for and find in yourself, okay, this is what I want to do or this is not what I want to do. Exactly. And also not only uh, traveling and going to the other side of the world might sound very spontaneous and exciting, Um But I think it's also allowing yourself to take that time, um, even if it's just a few weeks, not a few months, uh, to, to know that when you start something, you've considered it. And it's not something you just jumped into because other people told you it's what you were supposed to do. It was really your own choice. And I think it's much easier to live with that than any other way. Yeah, it's much, much easier to commit to a large project, let's say like a PhD, if it was really you who took the whole you know the decision was taken by you and just you although of course when we take these decisions if we have partners children uh, or you know there's there's always other variables in the equation but it's easier to commit to something like that 
if you really decide and if you really want it. I totally agree with you. And now for a short message. If you're preparing to launch your podcast, you may be asking yourself what hosting platform to use. I launched Papa PhD on Blueberry because I wanted a professional service that would interface with my WordPress website, that would robustly broadcast Papa PhD to all platforms, and that would allow me to grow my podcast in years to come. If you're starting a serious podcast project, do consider one of the first podcasting hosts out there, offering state-of-the-art services, including IAB certified statistics, based on years of experience in the podcasting space. So go to papaphd.com forward slash blueberry, that is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, or use the promo code PapaPhDBlue in one word on the Blueberry website to unlock a one-month free trial of the platform. And now back to the interview. Thanks for talking about that. I it's I, I you know it's something I I'm learning about you, but I, I really think it's interesting this concept of just taking a time to breathe, like but you know, mentally let's say, and it could be weeks, it could be months, or if again, if we you know you're privileged enough to be able to could be a, a whole year and, and finding meeting new people and, and discovering a, a new place i've never been to australia i, I think if i flew that far I'd, I'd go to japan first that that'd be my oh, <laughs> my, <yes. laughs> my dream <laughs> for now also on my list <laughs> all right very cool one thing i didn't ask you so you and now we're going back a little bit you said you you went to israel to learn uh to learn the language to, to learn uh hebrew yeah, that's right. After I finished high school, um, I grew up in the Netherlands. My dad is actually Israeli. Um, my mom used to be a volunteer in the kibbutz back in the 80s. That's how they met here in Israel. Um, so uh, they went to the Netherlands. I was born and raised there. Unfortunately, I have to say, my dad did not raise us bilingually. Uh, so I decided to take that gap year um, in order to understand my roots a little bit better, to get to know my family that had been living in Israel. Um, and to learn the language. Mm-hmm. And so is that when your interest for Middle Eastern studies uh, was born? I don't think so. I think it was already in me before it was that. Before. Okay. So that was, uh, that was already a step after, uh, a step towards something. Yeah, but the reason that I eventually decided to study Middle Eastern studies as a degree specifically is because I was interested in political science and in history. Um, but I didn't want to start with any of those studies because they usually have like 500, 600 people in the first year in one classroom. And I really wanted that attention, right? I wanted to be able to choose my own t- topics to write about and to really dig into things that I cared about. So I wanted to be in a smaller classroom with less people. And that's what Middle Eastern Studies was able to give me. This is so interesting. So people out there listening, go listen to the twin episode on what to do with that. Because on that episode, I was talking about why choosing a smaller university to do your PhD might be a better cho- a better choice for you. And it depends on, on, on your, your pre- preferences and what you're talking about of having a smaller classroom and choosing more what you want to do. It, it's like, it's really connected to that. It kind of, it's, it's another, you're at another stage, you were at, you know, at the BA stage, but that's kind of what I meant in our other conversation when I was saying, maybe going back, I would have gone to a smaller university because also I think I would have been able to achieve more and, 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 and take more pleasure in the, the whole process 
in a, a smaller setting with you know more uh, having more attention from the supervisor and the kind of a, a smaller scale of things exactly guys go listen to the other episode and you'll understand what i'm what i'm talking about <laughs> okay so we, we just went back to the ba a little bit and uh, and to your your roots so eventually you you did your ba ma took your your break you had a big break in a, in a way in in uh being accepted into the the program uh, and i'm sure you were excited receiving the the, the answer right I was very excited that someone was interested in what I was interested in. Yeah, that's one thing that, um, what, especially when you're, you're coming from abroad, you're, you, you're alone, and, and also depending on your personality, uh, sometimes it's hard to believe that someone will be interested in what you're interested in or will be interested in you as a candidate. And I must say, you know, I was surprised when i was accepted into my phd program because you know i was older i had done you know i had not been in the lab for for years and it's it's it is a good feeling being accepted into uh, into something like that by a, you know an organization uh, etc so uh, so at that time you were still in australia for a couple of months before before starting uh, yeah i went to australia we were there for about six months in total we left in about february march and then we came back around the holidays which must have been october-ish and i heard over summer that i got into the program um, and they knew that i was in australia because when i applied i had spoken to that former supervisor um, and i was also in touch with her uh, about the application so that was totally fine. And the semester only started again in October, also for my partner, which is why we had to come back around this time. All right. There's another thing that I, I find is important about what you're saying, which is even at the, the master's level, don't underestimate your network at the master's level, your, your professors, uh, your direct supervisor or other people. In Danny's case, she was, I don't know if it was a she or a he, your supervisor for the MA. For the MA, it was a she. She uh, pointed you towards what ended up being your PhD, which is which is awesome. So, one thing also, you know, universities can be you know, big machines, but the people that you interact with end up being your network. And don't underestimate and don't ignore that, because the doors to your your academic future they're out there. Maybe not one person away, but two people away. But this person will know the next. So. Uh, I think that's also a, a cool lesson from from what you're saying is uh, if you have good relationship with people around you in in the department, see uh, you know show interest, show interest in the, their projects and in what they're doing, and eventually they'll also remember you. So the question I wanted to ask after all of this is for people who are at that stage of almost starting a PhD or or waiting for a, an answer you had your answer and you i don't know if you opened the ball, opened the bottle of champagne or whatever but how did you then prepare for what did you have to prepare something was there paperwork or did you have to start reading right away how was that i think we ordered a large coke at the mcdonald's <laughs> <laughs> no i don't remember um but yeah, what do I do when I, well, how did I start, right? Uh, so I came back and the person who was first going to be my potential supervisor was now officially my supervisor. So of course I had a meeting with him um, and uh, we spoke about, yeah, what 
is going to be expected of me. Also from the university, I got somewhat of a contract that explained that my scholarship was going to be for three years, that I would have four years to hand in the actual dissertation, that I had one year to finish the, and have approved the proposal, um, things like that. So I started focusing very much only on the proposal in that first year because I understood that if I wouldn't make it past that first year, it wouldn't be approved, they would be able to kick me out of the program. And I didn't want that to happen. So that's what I focused on. And then I focused on that so much that I kind of lost track of what was going to happen after that. So when I handed it in, I was like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do now? Oh, I better read the proposal again to see what I told them I was going to do. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> so before you go forward, uh, talk a little bit, because, again, I'm coming from, you know, another side of things and, as you know, science, biology, etc. In your domain, how does writing a proposal work what what are the expectations and uh, you know what's uh, what dictates that uh, you know a proposal passes or or fails in a way you know i i think it's going to be super interesting for listeners who are considering something like what you're doing okay this this is what i need to prepare to just start fair enough i'll go for that um i have to say though that it might be a bit of a niche thing because my uh phd is anchored into the Center for German European Studies. So this is really a research center that is part of the university, but it's not necessarily part of a faculty. So it's not like I am there as a political scientist or as uh, someone from humanities. It's really an interdisciplinary center that combines all of those things and even law and other fields. Um, so it's interdisciplinary. Uh, so I, I suppose that if you're only a political scientist, in social sciences, you might have to do something differently. And then I know that this is also very particular to the University of Haifa. Uh, so it might be different for other people, but I'm willing to talk about how it was for me. Also, the way that uh, I was expected to write, right? Like this was the first piece of paper that was going to be viewed by my, uh, by my new PhD supervisor. Um, I, he's never, I assume, right, read my full 100-page MA thesis, because these people don't have time for things like that. So he hadn't really read anything from me before. Uh, so, of course, this proposal was the first thing that he would then also later on judge me on. That's how I felt about it. So a uh, very serious thing. Um, and then he, like, sent it back to me for some revisions every now and then. And after that, it um, needed to be handed in to the center officially. And they would send it to two um, reviewers who I didn't know who they were. And I was able to give any suggestions, just like when you um, hand in a paper, really, like for, for a journal uh, submission. Um, and then they would check it, and they've taken their time. It took about six months for the proposal to actually come back with these two reviewers' comments. And one of them was actually not so nice, and the other one was really okay. I didn't get the, the information or feedback directly from them. They gave it to my supervisor and my supervisor then pushed it on to me. And um, he thought that some of the comments might not have been completely fair or he did understand where they were coming from, but he thought that my proposal was good enough to at least get started for it. You also have to understand that in this proposal, it's a plan that you have, right? A piece of paper in which you have an idea of, I'm going to do it like this. But sometimes something happens that, like Corona, that you all of a sudden don't have access to something anymore, and then it, you need to do it in a different way. Um, and that's okay. 
they're not going to pin you down on that or they're not going to take your scholarship away because of something like that. So he convinced the board that it would be fine for me to do this research anyway in the way that I had described with conditions. Um, and then I passed to what they call um, level or no, yeah, I think level B. So I went from being a student A to a student B. Okay. And so in this, in this proposal, you were kind of setting the, the framework for the whole work so the you know, getting the data and data analysis all of that towards the the subject that you had decided exactly it had a little bit of a literature review it had the research question it had my methods in there um and also kind of a a timeline like what did i want to do when so in the first steps i was going, of course going to do the data collection and then do some writing uh, and also even before that of course literature review things like that Okay, and was it before sending to the reviewers? Was there some back and forth with your with your supervisor? I'm just again curious of how the process is. Yeah, so there was back and forth just on the proposal only with my supervisor. Uh, I think I made four versions, uh, and each of them looked very different. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, there a lot of changes were made, but I think only for the better. Um, it really helped me that someone explained to me through these revisions from my supervisor directly to understand what was going to be expected of me. Like I could tell them I'm going to do A and B because I think that's a great idea, but maybe, you know, in political science or in history, my supervisor is actually a historian that doesn't work that way. So he was able to tell me, well, you know, if you write it like this, or if you think about it this way, then it works better. So that was very helpful. Cool. So just before we go to the break and uh, and we end part one, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about what your day-to-day -day is doing your research. So for someone who's working in, in your domain, it's very, like you said, it's very niche, it's very particular, but what, and now there's Corona that's, you know, that's even changed things for sure. And, in, and uh, I don't know how much access you have to university facilities, but If you forget Corona, what's your day-to-day -day look like implementing what you had planned in your proposal, you know, during now your PhD as a B student? As a B student, I, um, I'm now still focusing very much on data collection because I'm doing a discourse analysis. Um, I'm looking into newspapers to see how newspapers speak about certain uh, groups of people, for example, people with a migration background in my case, specifically coming from the Middle East, um, including, including North Africa and Iran, Turkey, all these countries, um, to see what, in what way they write about them. Um, if it's like with a bit of a negative connotation or more positive, um, in what context really. So I'm using a lot of newspapers to see how this was done over time. The, my time frame is pretty long. It's from about the 60s until today and in every decade, Yeah, in every decade, I'm looking at one year. So it's a bit like less work that way, but it's still a lot of work. So um, for the newspapers I need from the 60s, they don't actually have them digitalized from Dutch newspapers and German newspapers. So I need to go to archives or um, libraries or university libraries on site to actually have access to them. Uh, so I've been to Germany twice in the last year for a research trip, once in Frankfurt and once in Berlin, 
to really full-time sit in the library there, stare at the screen or at the papers and go through them. Uh, microfilm, I've done a lot of microfilm as well. <laughs> yeah, so my eyes are actually square instead of brown. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a spy, like the spy movies. Uh, you're, you're, uh, you're going through these old, old archives. Oh yeah, it definitely felt like a, I felt like a detective a little bit. But but that was only for those trips for a short amount of time. So most of the time, I was sitting behind my own desk or in my university's library to do a lot of reading, a lot, a lot of reading um, on um, the history of Germany and the Netherlands. Uh, when did people come from abroad in, in bigger waves? Uh, how, what have other researchers said about that already? Um, reading a lot of uh, policy documents. When were there big changes in policy about migration, immigration in Germany and the Netherlands? Um, but also on a larger scale, what was happening in the world? What was happening in Europe and the European Union to understand why the Netherlands and Germany react to that? So lots of readings, um about that okay and i'm just curious do, do you do you then uh have some computational analysis of, of the words uh, i'm just wondering what the methodology then is to kind of uh kind of take the juice out of all of the the data that you that you collect right so that's one of the things that's most likely going to change from my proposal um originally i was going to look much more on a quantitative level into these articles. Um, and when I started searching for articles in the 60s, that seemed very legit because I was finding a maximum of 100 articles for one year, right, in the 60s. Um, so this is something, short newspaper articles that you can go through. Um, and then I got to the 90s and uh, it was, uh, a lot was talked about refugees, for example, because we had, uh, um, a lot of people coming in at that time and people uh, also using it very much for uh, political campaigns. Um, and then all of a sudden I had 700 articles for one year. <laughs> so then it became a lot more and I needed to consider looking at it in a different way or making a stricter selection from that selection that I already made. Uh, so that's something that I'm still looking into because I'm still in the process of that data collection and it depends on what the outcome of that is, on how I'm going to deal with that exactly. But in my proposal, I've also described uh, different ways of looking into it, citing uh, others um, who have done things like this before. Cool. And now, just to close part one, you told, told me before, when I applied for a PhD, I didn't know what a PhD was, what a PhD entailed. Uh, and now you're you know, in the middle of one. Just to kind of close this first part about about more your academic uh, experience, what uh, would you tell, uh, uh, if you could travel in time and uh, talk to, to Danny uh, two, three years ago, just before you got in, how better prepared would you like to have been and in what specific um, aspects, let's say? Right. Um, I think... It's a little bit of a difficult question because, like I said, I'm halfway, which means I'm almost two years into the PhD um, and I still feel like a newbie. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm very, you know, confident saying like what I should be telling myself back then because I'm still not 100% sure how I should have reacted to getting this position or thinking about applying for the position. 
Um, and after listening to a lot of people through the podcast and also through your episodes and the podcast of what are you going to do with that, um, it could be easy to say, oh my gosh, I should have never gotten into this. Um, the chances of actually landing an academic uh, position, a career, uh, are very small. And um, it's not really worth it. Like, what are you really doing it for? But that might be a little bit easy to say because um, back then I didn't really know what I was getting into. Now I understand it a little bit better and I understand the struggles that come with it. But I'm also more motivated than ever to actually finish the PhD. So what would maybe help for me three years ago is saying right from the start, it's not only you and your supervisor in this process. Um, I only have one peer. The center that I'm doing my research as has one other PhD candidate who started at the same time with me. So I didn't really have other people to talk with at that time, but it was really helpful that I got to the Minerva Center, which is where the podcast is anchored in, um, because there they had people who were almost done with their PhD or already doing their postdoc, and they were presenting their research and talking about their articles. And I was like, oh, articles, like, do we have to do that too? <laughs> um, and then after six months, I had to present something myself as well. Uh, so I winged it a little bit, but it, and it was about my proposal, so it was definitely something that I'd already been writing about. But I started receiving feedback, and these people were very helpful and supportive, not only very negative. Um, and, and that was very helpful. I think it, it's good for PhD students who are just about to start to realize that they can go out and look for peers. They don't have to sit and wait until it comes to them, because this can feel as a very lonely uh, process and it doesn't necessarily have to be it's true and w one thing uh, i agree 100 percent. i just want to reiterate that so go go if there's if you're in a small department go see what's happening in the next you know next door go go uh, attend seminars and uh, and yeah if there's uh, student groups that are doing journal clubs or whatever just go go you're gonna gonna meet new people uh, maybe they're going to become uh, writing buddies whenever you start writing your thesis. You know, maybe they're going to we're going to discuss, and some ideas will 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 come up for your work that you didn't know about. So for sure, go. But one thing that you mentioned is good good feedback and ba and negative feedback. And I had to do a bunch of you know every now and then the students had to do this uh, this seminar uh, th this uh, presentation about the, how their work was going. And it was in front of not all the students because not all of them came came all the time, but you know a bunch of supervisors, a bunch of students, and it was daunting. And it's it's easy to and now I'm looking back, right? And I and I have you know I've, I've grown up and I have you know I have evolved in terms of how I, I see things. But even negative feedback, I feel looking back that. And again, I was at an institute where you know people are p publishing really well. The, the, all of that was for to try and get you and you you and your supervisor to bring your work to the next level, to make it better than it was at the time. But it's true that having positive feedback is easier on the on the ego, and 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 also it's it it gives you kind of a little boost of motivation, and I think it's. It can't. You're right. It can't always be negative. 
But um, right, and it needs to be a combination, a right? Because if something yeah. is not good, someone needs to tell That's you that. It. But it needs to be told in a constructive manner. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's important. Yeah, and not everyone has the knack of giving a constructive comment, you know, in the smoothest way. But you know what? It's like that. We're we're all different. Danny, we've reached the end of part one, and uh, uh, I think yeah, we've covered pretty much uh, what I wanted uh, in this part. But you uh, you do other things besides uh, your research. And one of them is is uh, hosting what are you going to do with that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in part two. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you for, for telling us your journey. And uh, for listeners out there, uh, part two is coming up. So just uh, stick around. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Danny Reges. Now, find What Are You Going To Do With That on your podcast app and listen to the sister episode, where Danny interviews me. And explore season one of their podcast, where they have great conversations about life as an academic researcher with diverse and interesting guests. This is part one of the last interview of season one of Papa PhD. Thank you for being a faithful listener. If this is the first episode you've listened to, do go and explore the conversations I've had with over 50 guests in this first season. I'm sure you'll find inspiration in many of the stories shared and strategies to apply in your academic and professional journey. And if you do like the show, share your favorite episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way you can help indie podcasters like me. I'm currently interviewing new guests for season two, which will start on September 24th. So mark the date on your calendar. I'll be expecting you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.